electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, an extended interview with Lloyd Blankfein, the former head of Goldman Sachs. The banker weighs in on stimulus. I'm no longer surprised at being surprised at what comes out of Washington or doesn't come out of Washington. I would have thought that there would have been huge incentives, you know, especially on the part of the incumbents to get a deal done. The role corporate America may play in economic recovery. Companies should do more what they need to do, and the government's role is to redistribute the overall success of the economic system that you get from that kind of harshness and make sure that gets redistributed into the right place. And Blankfein's take on a big tech breakup. Now we have Mark Zuckerberg and his lieutenants deciding what gets out there and what doesn't get out there. That can't work in a democracy. Those stories plus nose swaps, temperature checks, and NFL delays. Just another day in 2020. I got really excited. Very excited. It's Friday, October 9th. Squawk Pod begins right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Lloyd Blankfein served as chairman and CEO of the investment and banking securities company Goldman Sachs from 2006 to 2018. Throughout his time at Goldman, Blankfein accomplished several notable things, including carrying the bank through the 2008 financial crisis and sticking it out later as one of only two bank CEOs remaining from the crisis, the other being J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon, who is still in the job. In late 2008, Blankfein accepted a $10 billion bailout from the Treasury Department and agreed to convert the then brokerage firm Goldman Sachs into a bank, opening itself up to billions of dollars in emergency funding from the Federal Reserve. Blankfein has come under fire over the years for claiming as a banker he was doing God's work and his high compensation amid the economic downturn that started in 2008. Still, he remained resilient and funded a small business program to help young entrepreneurs, created a business standards committee, and worked on increasing and fostering diversity at Goldman. Following his retirement, Blankfein has offered incisive commentary on Twitter, where he has over 120,000 followers. Check it out. He's at... Lloyd Blankfein, of course. Today on the pod, Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin speak with Lloyd Blankfein about the stalemate over more federal stimulus, additional aid for airlines, the state of the banking sector, and much more. Here's Joe. Hey, Lloyd, it's great, uh, great to have you with us this morning. It's great to have. It's great to see you. If I could see you, somehow I can only see myself here. I have a great. But, uh, but I know you're there. You the, yeah, I'm here. We are all here, and we're all uh, excited to have you. So. We had an interesting interview yesterday with, with uh, 
Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari. And you heard of uh, Chairman Powell's comments. I mean, it, to, to just paraphrase, I think he said something like, yeah, we might overshoot, or Congress might overshoot with stimulus and give a lot more than we need, but it'll be put to good use. And we kind of heard the same thing yesterday from Neil uh, Kashkari, and uh, he said that there's no moral hazard around this time. And that's how it's different than in 2008, because it was sort of, I don't know, self-inflicted, however you want to view it. And, and this, there is no more, uh, moral hazard. Do you view it that way, Lloyd? We just need to throw Well, I'd the say there's no, uh, you know, there's no enemy of the people in this time around. There's always, there's always moral hazard. I mean, people can run their businesses to anticipate crises uh, and keep excess cash. I'm not sure it's in the public interest that people keep excess cash on the order that would get them through a crisis that occurs once every hundred years. You know, we would turn the country into a, into a T-bill uh, in terms of risk taking, in terms of return for the sake of avoiding the once in a hundred year event. So uh, I, I do think that it, it's different. Uh, it's different to some extent. I, I have a lot of, um, uh, you know, I, la I have a lot of um, um, sympathy for people who are hurt by this. At the same time, in the abstraction, the capitalist model says, uh, you know, you want to punish people who don't anticipate things and don't prepare for an uncertain future. And while this risk was uh, very low probability, the idea that something of some sort would happen is a much higher probability. So there's always a bit of moral hazard in all these things. But the practicality of it is I think the United States would like to have an airline industry at the end of this. And so you have to be practical with these things and not just sanctimonious about it. I'm going to let Andrew handle the, the airline uh, debate, and I'm sure he wants to talk to you about whether shareholders should be advantaged or not. That's coming. But before we get to that, I just want to get one more question to you overall, Lloyd, and that is, I, I guess, you know, I, I think in terms of risk management, and, and I'm not just being nice, but obviously that was one of the things that, that you, were, you were great at. And I think, you know, as a trader, I think that, you know, that's why you ended up running uh, Goldman Sachs. So. If you're running this country in terms of uh, fiscal and monetary policy right, right now, are, are, are there risk red flags coming up to you yet? If we're 100 and I don't know what we are as, as a percentage of GDP in terms of debt, but other places have gotten into trouble at similar levels in the past. Well, sure. Um, not just the level of debt, you know, the level of interest rates. You know, money is close to a free commodity, and when something is, cre is free, you tend not to husband it and you tend to uh, you tend to overuse it uh, because like it's a free good. And so you have to be very, very cagey and alert because you know that even if you can't see them, they'll be perfectly obvious to you in hindsight. And obviously people will remember your critics will remember having seen it and that you should have seen it. But people aren't seeing it. But, you know, that given that money is 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 kind of free. It presumably is not being allocated very in a disciplined way, and so there are bubble elements to this. And you can see them. You know, you could see some things. You know, the, obviously the credit market, people are lending to. You know, what historically would have been viewed as weak credits for very, very little money. Look, people are lending to the U.S. Treasury for I mean, today 80 basis points, but for a long time 60 basis points for 10 years. Uh, in a, uh, uh, you know, as if they would never, it never be inflation again, as if the, the dollars you're going to get back plus 60 basis points a year is going to compensate you for the risk you're taking. So you're clearly, the wash of money is clearly creating uh, bubble elements. You look at SPACs 
and how much money is available on the basis of somebody's uh, reputation, for example, as opposed to uh, you know as opposed to business plan. Okay, so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna lead into this, and and you you and and then Andrew can take over. So we need an airline industry. We all agree with that. But why should uh, shareholders not lose a penny in the airline industry? Uh, why should uh, taxpayers not be compensated for, uh, you know, for keeping not employees of airlines in business, but keeping the shareholders as solvent as they were when they went in? When, you know, the airlines did do buybacks. They did, uh, you know, some sure. would say that they didn't, uh, they didn't uh, shepherd the money as well as they should have, even though this wasn't their fault. They still you know, maybe should have prepared for a rainy day better. Why should they get off scot-free, the, the shareholders? Well, in the, you know, in the pure model, no one ever should. And then you have to have, you know, like a lot of things, the pure model has to, uh, has to be, you know, practicality. And um, we need to have these, uh, we need to have these institutions, and we need to have these companies take the money um, and be able to run their business at the end of it. Um, you don't really, I mean, you kind of like to reset it and have it all working and then have them make, um, make decisions without government's finger on the scale or any kind of intervention or looking over the shoulder. But of course, that won't make sense to people. It doesn't make sense to me because you do kind of want, you don't want to let people get off scot-free and you do want to compensate, um, you know, the public for uh, the investment and for, you know, let's use the word bailout again. Uh, but if you are too um, active in that respect, and if you take too much value, uh, you run the risk of, uh, of A, it being unattractive to take, and B, you may not like the way, the business may not be run very well afterwards. Um, but so you have to have some balance of the thing. I can understand it, um, I can understand it from both sides, but I think theory has to give way sometimes to practicality, but you can't totally abandon the concept of uh, you know free markets, but you know free markets you know have to compromise with um, necessity. Lloyd, on, on that specific issue, though, and, and you probably heard me talk about this, you know the political backlash against the banks was so strong after the financial crisis, in large part because of the rescues and a feeling, even though it was inaccurate, and I would argue have argued against it uh, throughout, uh, that the banks didn't pay the money back. Not only did the banks pay the money back. They paid the money back plus plus and taxpayers were beneficiaries of that, in addition to the fact that the economy got back on its feet and it was able to be the backroom engine of the economy once again. If you were to make the similar or same arguments around the airline industry, you'd say you want the airlines to be working because they're going to be an engine of the economy and create jobs and all the things that the same same to some degree on the banks. I know people think that the that the banks were a man-made uh, uh, crisis, and, and to some degree right. they were. And this is it is a bit of a different story. But at the same time, on the other end, you're a CEO. If your company is about to go bankrupt, uh, don't you think that there is some kind of market deal to be had here, where the government says to you, "Okay, we're very happy to help you, but we're going to dilute your shareholders." That that's that's just what's going to happen here. Well, I think they will. And, the, and the, the flip side is because these are consumer brands, don't you think that they'd be injured even more if they just went bankrupt? Do you think they, well, the CEO would prefer to go a, bankrupt? Bankrupt is as much injury as a company can have. They don't, they, you know, like, you know, they don't, they don't shoot you. I think at this point, but I haven't checked in recently. Um, I think, um, you know, I think that when the risk gets starts to when it starts to become existential for the airline companies, they'll do what they need to do uh, to protect their business. 
I'm taking, you know, and it might be close to that. They might be negotiating positions, but they'll, um, I think eventually a deal, yes. Uh, both sides will be incented at the risk, you know, at the risk of uh, excess, at, at cost price of existential risk, um, we'll do it. But, you know, there's also a different concept. You know, in American culture, there's a lot of antipathy. You know, if you relate this back to 08, there's always been a lot of antipathy to, you know, large collect, you know, aggregations of financial, you know, power in the country, you know, going back to the founding of the country and Jefferson and Hamilton, you know, all that. But people have always had uh, a lot of resentment to, um, to economic, you know, those at the fulcrum of economic power. And, and I think, um, um, and I think uh, airlines are a bit different. I think the, you know, the problem will come in, in hindsight, when this all gets done and the world is, you know, fine again, and people are lying back and looking at it, you'll say, oh, gee, it wasn't the airline's fault, but it wasn't the corner grocer's fault or the restaurateur's fault or um, uh, any, any one of a number of industries that aren't going to, or people that aren't going to survive this economically. And you say, why were those guys so favored and other people weren't is it because they were more deserving it was because they were bigger and those aren't the right reasons and so they'll no doubt be um after this gets done they will no doubt be second guessing and um um you know i see and uh you know show trials again about why why these things happen the way it did Lloyd, you but that's that perspective that said you have to deal with the problem that you have today so i think you know sometimes you have to put you know i have to do these things um um, and I think um, I would like to have an airline industry and it won't give me satisfaction to protect high capitalism and the theory of it and come out of this with, um, you know, with a totally damaged. Think of what happened, you know, in the airline industry where there was a specific bailout. Does anybody, people, um, legislators who are involved in those rescues are now um, are now bragging about their role in protecting and preserving that industry in the United States. And so. Um, I think we have to, you know, we don't always like what we have to do, but sometimes you have to do it. You have to step up. And it's kind of a profiles and courage moment for people who are declared capitalists and who just don't like this. Well, that might be why there's all these talks in Washington about doing this piecemeal. But if you had an airline package get passed, maybe at the same time you would have something additionally passed for small businesses. Because how do you choose a big business, a big industry sure. over small restaurants or others that have been in big trouble? I would fight for that. And one of the big surprise, look, I'm, I'm no longer surprised at being surprised at what comes out of, uh, what comes out of you know, Washington or doesn't come out of Washington. I would have thought that there would have been huge incentives, you know, especially on the part of the incumbents to get a deal done. I mean, people going into an election, people would rather have people who would rather have the electorate being happier than sadder, feeling, uh, you know, feeling more optimistic rather than pessimistic about the future. So there was an opportunity to give, uh, you know, to juice the economy, if you will. Um, and, um, you know, they didn't take advantage of it. Um, I, I, I don't really know the strategy on the, uh, on the frankly, on the Republican side to let it go unless they thought um, that uh, they couldn't get it through their own caucus uh, in the Senate. Um, but that doesn't, seem, that doesn't seem right to me. But maybe it's just deep-held conviction that... Uh, that um, it was an overreach by the Democrats, and it was really ideologically based. And, and uh, you know, I, it, 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 it's usually about the 10th 
guess when I try to think of a reason for something I'm dealing with Washington that it was real, uh, real uh, ideological conviction. But maybe who knows? Maybe that was the case. It looks like President Trump says that in his words, looks like there's a really good chance uh, to reach a deal uh, on covid aid. Talks have reopened according uh, to the president. Plus, Regeneron is going to go for, uh, for emergency approval, and re that stock uh, it, it is up a lot. We'll let, we'll let you comment on all that, uh, Lloyd. But my overarching, I have an overarching question, and that is, it's, and Kashkari said this, too, every 10 years, it seems like the financial system needs a bailout. We need a different financial system. But my question is it's about capitalism in general. It, 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 you're supposed to put your money down and risk it on, on an idea, uh, knowing that you can make it big or lose it big. If we keep making it so that you don't lose, uh, it just seems like things that the, you don't get real market um, prices. It, it's, it's almost like everything's fake. You can't trust the price discovery on anything that you're doing, whether it's debt or whether it's you know, equity or, or whatever it is. When does this really finally become, I mean, okay, now it's COVID, before it was the housing crisis, before, you know, it was SNL, I don't know, whatever it is, but when do we finally say, look, you need to lose and, and, and suffer the well, consequences or else it's not gonna work true. anymore? Look, if you have to lose, it's better that you lose at a time when everybody else is losing and at a really, at a really tough time. If you're, if you're the only loser, you're gonna lose. And if you're losing at a point in time where it's highly consequential and adverse to the interests of the country for everybody to lose at the same time, you have a better chance of getting some relief. That's just the practic that's the practicality of it. Uh, but in concept, I don't think there's been a financial crisis that required major intervention every 10 years. No, uh, I didn't either. It was I agree. There was a Fed. Uh, that's you know that's kind of silly. You, you know you had a once in a hundred year uh, pandemic. Right. And you had, I can't think of what happened before um, 08 um, that would have that would have required maybe the Great Depression. The problem is, I think there's a risk on the other side, which is that you create moral in, in the interest of preserving moral hazard. Um, you make it so oppressive that people have to run themselves so conservatively and hold on to cash and not use it for risk oriented purposes. Again, you could turn you know, metaphorically, you could turn the country into a very, very safe T-bill, which has a zero, you know, which has, you know, returns measured in the single basis points. Um, and we're not going to like that outcome either. So I don't want to endure a big financial crisis every other generation. But if we do what's necessary to do to make sure we never have such a thing again, uh, we're going to be a lot, we're going to be a much, much, much poorer country. So I'm afraid it's baked in the cake that we have to allow for some of these prices. By the way, that's why we have a Fed. That's why we have a lender of last resort. Um, and But at the same time, you have to balance it by punishing people who, um, you know, allowing the market to punish people. But, you know, if you can't sit on either of those extremes, you have to, you have to run the country and you have to let practicality seep in and take some, uh, you know, moral hazard risk from time to time. Um, Lloyd, I know you don't want to talk specifically about Goldman Sachs, but let's talk about the banks and the economy a little more broadly. We, we had Mike Mayo on just a little bit ago, and he said that he thinks because the banks have taken such big reserves and because borrower health at this point isn't all that bad, he thinks we're, we're past the worst of it when it comes to what that will mean for the banks and for the economy. Is that the sense you get? Um, I, I, I could feel pretty liber liberated to say this because I don't really know anything uh, other than 
what you know, uh, but my judgment says, yes, that's right. I think this is, I mean, the big risk is um, on, on, on big loan books, but I would say every other activity um, is probably doing very, very well, you know, well in this market, um, especially banks that are involved in intermediating, you know, trading banks are probably doing very, very well in this market. That would be my, that would be my guess. You think out of derivatives, if there's a, a potential rebound in coronavirus cases over the fall and winter, or do you think of second derivatives some some other perspective, or basically you feel pretty good about it because that means a lot given your analysis. Well, I'm pretty optimistic now. Years. When you talk about getting, when you talk about this, when you talk about, I think the banks are probably making good money. The question always is, does that translate into higher stock valuations? And you know, you can look at the behavior. People don't. Uh, people. Um, don't assign a very big as as big a multiple to those because of uh, I guess the volatility or the insecurity of those earnings. Um, I spend half my year, half my career in a private company, go um, and then the other half is a public company, same company, but we went public in in my in the middle of my career. And in the old days, you just had to make money, and you didn't have to make it evenly over four quarters or evenly over the years. Um, you just accumulated. Uh, you just accumulated resources, and you distributed. Now you have to earn money, but you have to earn it in a way where the market will assign a higher multiple to it, and it's a different kind of game uh, for management. So I can't predict how stock prices would react. But my again, my best guess is that the uh, the firms are making money in this environment. What they they assign a lot of value to that uh, is up to the uh, is up to the market on the conditions that I described. Lloyd, back to the political uh, backlash. There's still political backlash that's around from 2008-2009. Now you have new backlash that's kind of building up. And I, I think last week or the week before, there was a House sub-panel that came out with a report that said the 380-something companies that the Fed has been buying um, their stocks or their bonds in the open market have combined laid off over a million workers since March. And, and that got me back to that feeling of, oh boy, here we go again. Many of those companies were doing just fine. The Fed was stepping in trying to stabilize the markets. But do you think there's going to be a much harder uh, time for businesses overall to run their businesses because of the amount of money that Washington has poured into the economy and into the markets? No, I think that's right. I think there'll be pressure. Look, in a, poor, in a, in a pure model uh, on either side, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I described that before. I think we, we, we shouldn't be in a pyramid. I think they will be pressure on businesses. They will um, be concerned about the public relations of of, uh, of laying off people and doing things that, for example, aren't advantageous to stakeholders other than their shareholders. Look, you have to you have to earn money, shareholders. You have to succeed, and you have to. Part of success is uh, is preserving your reputation with with uh, the citizenry and the general public. So there'll be some compromises along the line. If you had a European model where they were worried they wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't be able to fire anybody and you would have a bad performance going on for a very long time. In the U.S. model, which is a little bit rougher and more capitalistic and errs on that side, kind of businesses do what they need to do at the cost of some dislocation to their employees uh, and there's more pain in the short term. Uh, hopefully ameliorated by some government support and subsidies to the affected group, but you take that you take that action and get to a place, you know, cut cut you know, lay off people sooner, and then the adjustment may gets made quicker. And the U.S. GDP always outperforms Europe over the long term. 
Um, and so those are the trade-offs. There's some so short-term social, it's the, it's the social impact versus the econo long-term economic growth. Um, I generally think companies should do more what they need to do, and the government's role is to redistribute that overall success of the economic system that you get from that kind of harshness and make sure that gets redistributed into the right place so that um, you know we preserve uh, you know we preserve our social cohesion. Lloyd, but as we walk into I, the end I, of the I'm year, how can businesses be run badly or that we pad payrolls forever because that will just reduce the amount of wealth that could be distributed? Well, that, that was the question I was going to ask, though. As we walk into the end of the year, how concerned are you that what I would describe as successful companies, companies that appear, at least from the outside, to be doing well, are realizing that they can be more productive, frankly, and, and, and productive, productivity is always a good thing in certain regards, but you're going to start to see more and more layoffs, both across Wall Street, you're already starting to see it, including at your former firm, uh, but also perhaps technology companies and others, high-paying jobs, not furloughed jobs, and, and whether you think that the market will pick, be able to pick those jobs up uh, quickly or it becomes a bigger problem. Well, this, is a bit, this has been quite an accelerant to the revolution that was otherwise taking place. In hindsight, it looks like slow motion. At the time, I thought it was quick, but it's going to happen a lot quicker now. You know, where would we be? Look how we're talking. You know, I'm talking on my, I'm, I'm talking on my iPad through, uh, through Zoom. And we're, having, and we're engaging in a way that in some respects is easier and better than had I had to uh, you know, face the traffic and get, to your, and get to your office. These things are going to change. We discovered that you can work from home. Maybe you don't need as much space. We discovered um, that you may not need as many people because guess what? Not everybody's showing up for work and not everybody has been productive under these circumstances. So there's going to be a much more rapid adjustment. Now you could you know, you could curse the tide and try to hold it back. But, you know, now that we've discovered this, we're not going to be able to undiscover this. So I think that there's going to be a lot more uh, rapid change in the direction of the technological revolution. Now, once upon a time, you go back over 100 years to the turn of the 19th century into the 20th century. U.S., you know, had a very largely agricultural economy and you know, it, we industrialized and manufacturing, uh, you know, accelerated in the country and, you know, jobs got redistributed. There was dislocation. Um, but you have to make those adjustments and those are progress. I think it's the role of government to, um, to cushion the adverse effects of those radical changes uh, through, you know, the tax system, which is progressive and thereby redistributes and other ways. But the idea of holding back that progress uh, is uh, wrong, but it's also futile because you can't unlearn what you've learned. Lloyd, very quickly, we've, we've talked an awful lot about big technology and being targeted by, by government. You think that there will be some sort of breakup that takes place here? What do you think those companies are, are, are facing at this yeah, point after being be, labeled monopolist? I think there'll be a lot, of, uh, a lot of pressure on those companies. I thought this for a long time. I didn't know what tack it would take. Um, but the and by the way, in some big sociological 30,000-foot view, you can't allow companies to become more powerful than our elected officials, uh, than, the, than, than any other political body in the country. Uh, the, uh, the political system would reject it, should reject it in a way. And again, I'm talking abstractly here. Uh, you can't have, you know, just think of all the cases that have come out on the subtleties and nuances of free speech. And now we have Mark Zuckerberg 
uh, and his, uh, you know, and his lieutenants deciding what gets, you know, what gets out there and what doesn't get out there. That can't, that can't work in a democracy. The democracy won't tolerate it. And I wasn't sure necessarily what form the approach would take of government. They could talk about the violate, you know, the infringement on free on privacy, um, national security, for example, letting the Russians in to influence our system or antitrust monopolizing activity. Uh, and, you know, eventually all of those elements will come down. And I, I think that it's possible that there's a breakup or some other element of control. I'm not dying to have these great companies become utilities because it's a jewel of our system that we produce such innovation. And I'd like to and I wouldn't want to, uh, you know, give them a lobotomy by making them into utilities because I kind of like what they're doing. But at the same time, there has to be a lot more regulation and perhaps even you know, a breakup. Our economic system thrives on competition. Uh, it's not technically a crime to be a monopoly. It's only a crime to monopolize. Uh, but once you're a monopoly, it's very hard not to monopolize. And these people have gone out and won the competition. And they're either uh, duopolies or monopolies in some cases or in that direction. And I think the political body is going to respond to that. Because again, uh, nature abhors a vacuum, but, um, but democracy abhors concentrations of power in the hands of individuals. Well, I'd want to thank you for your time and a very thoughtful conversation today. It's really good to see you. Oh, nice to see you. Almost see you. Nice to hear you. Coming up, distinguishing COVID-19 from the flu, but at what cost? Where it looks like they're taking a, a sample of your frontal lobe. You know how painful <laughs> that is? Squawk Pod will be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Osorkin, along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. You know, guys, I'll tell you something that I, I, I don't usually get excited, get excited about mergers. But Becky, when you do this AMD story, oh, yeah. I, I, I've got some, some details about, I mean, AMD, guys, AMD. Do you know how long? I, I was a stockbroker in 1982. You know, AMD also ran of all time. It goes between 10 and 1 and 10 and 1 and 10 and, and it never really got much traction against Intel. It's a hundred billion dollar company now and it's buying yeah. Xilinx. Do you know how big the company was yeah. just three or four years ago? AMD it was back to its old self. It was back to its old self. It was, guess how, what the low was in 2016? It's a hundred dollars now. Guess what the low was in 2016? What? $1.81. So it was, wow. a two, wow. it was a $2 billion company. It was a $2 billion company just a couple of years ago. 
Well, I mean, it's a lifetime. I mean, how long is 2020? It's like eight years, right? So, so let's call it 12, 12 years ago. So, but no, really, four years ago. In, two, in February of 2016, I just looked at it. It was dollar eighty-one. Here we go. Becky, you go ahead and do it. Because Xilinx was, was, on, was only 12, with 12 billion. It's now 30 billion, 25 billion. So that's only double, yeah. whereas AMD is up 50 times in value. Unless my math well, is... We, I, I, just to give you the backstory on this, if you haven't been following along, chipmaker AMD is in advanced talks to buy its rival Xilinx. You can see the stock's reaction here. Advanced Micro down by about 4.6%, but Xilinx up by 17%. The Wall Street Journal reports that the deal would be valued at more than $30 billion and come together as soon as next week. Xilinx chips, of course, are used in wireless communications and data centers, and that company has suffered from the Trump administration limits on shipments that are allowed to be sent to China's Huawei. Those shipments to Huawei accounted for about 7% of Xilinx's revenue before this. Meantime, AMD's stock has been on a tear this year. If you take a look at what's been happening, it's up 89% with its uh, market cap, as Joe mentioned, now close to $100 billion, $96.9 billion there, uh, off a little bit today, but we'll see where this goes. And, and that is a, a huge deal. And Joe, you're right. Watching that stock over the years, watching it try to challenge yes. Intel it was uh, again and again and it, again, yeah, it kind of gets stuck in that range. And people would recommend it, and I'd be like, AMD. You know, I've seen it so many times <laughs> go between. Um, and then Xilinx. Do you guys remember Xilinx from the old Squawk Box? Do you remember what we used to say about that favorite? Because it, you know what they make, right? Yeah. Field programmable Chips. Gatorade. Field programmable Gatorade. That's where, you know, one guy <laughs> likes grape, one guy likes grape, one guy likes uh, lemonade. You know what I mean? The, the flavors. So you're on the field and you go over to the thing. It's like one of, you, one of those machines at Wendy's where you can press the, actually it's gate arrays. Field programmable gate arrays, which were, you know, chips. But we, we, do use, we use that yeah. joke so many times that, it, you know, it, but... This is the old Xilinx, and it used to be Altera. Altera and Xilinx were, all, were always competitors. I think Altera's gone too, isn't it? Anyway, I got really excited about this, about this deal, because AMD finally made it. Now they can buy a $30 billion company. I mean, they used to be worth two or three billion. So I am as excited as you about a merger, and you're the excited one, Sorkin, usually about mergers, but you're, you're bored with this. You know, it, I feel like there's certain deals that are, are game changing. I don't know if this is this may be game changing for AMD. I don't want to if you're if you're working at AMD or Xilinx, it's important. I don't know if it fundamentally somehow reshapes the, the industry anymore. Well, that, at, at least you could you know. have you, you thought if you had bought AMD at a dollar eighty one a couple of years ago. Yes, you'd be very excited. Yeah. You'd be very excited. More fallout this morning in the NFL after some positive COVID tests. The league postponed the Patriots. Broncos game that was going to be on Sunday to Monday after at least two more New England players tested positive this week. The Patriots game last week, last weekend, uh, was delayed by a day after quarterback Cam Newton tested positive. And hearing about the Titans, the Tennessee Titans game against the Buffalo Bills will be moved from Sunday to Tuesday. The Titans have had 23 positive COVID tests uh, since late September. Becky. Yeah, that's been concerning. They were supposed to be able to open their practice facility again, but then they got two more that slowed it down this week. Um, yeah, after being on a very strong start and not seeing many positive cases, this is something that certainly has people concerned about what happens with the NFL. The NFL's weird, isn't it? So it, it, it sounds horrible, and they go, in fact, we're now we're delaying it for a day. It's like, okay. That, yeah. uh, 
But you're right, though. NFL is different than baseball. You can't have a, a doubleheader. You know how many doubleheaders, seven-inning doubleheaders uh, there were, which made it impossible to bet because the over and the under was totally messed up. You know, it was like six and a half or something like that. Genmark Diagnostics, the FDA granted the company emergency clearance for its rapid molecular test that can distinguish between the coronavirus and the flu. The test uses a nasal swab uh, to collect samples and provides that results in less than two hours. Genmark's market cap is just a little over a billion dollars. Um, so that's, that's obviously a, a small cap, but I've seen too many of the videos of that. I, I think I'd rather go ahead and, and, and you know, take some blood um, rather than what they do with... Really? With, where it looks like they're taking a, a sample of your frontal lobe. Do you know how painful <laughs> that is to, to, I mean, doesn't that look? Yeah, but not all of them are, are as deep as, uh, as that. You know, yeah, I think okay. they've gotten better with not needing to go quite as deep for some of these swabs on these things. But Brain I was tissue. thinking this test came along just in the nick of time because this can distinguish between the flu and coronavirus right as we're getting into the potential right. for flu season. And that's going to be really important. If you can turn that around in a couple of hours and know if somebody, if you've got the symptoms, that could keep schools from having to close as frequently. It could keep uh, workplaces open longer, too. How often with the flu do you feel that, you know, a little bit feverish and a little bit, you know, how often does, does that side effect hit? Because... I mean, if I feel the slightest bit feverish now, I, and I, I, I haven't, obviously, you, you know, you think you might, and yeah. I may have just done something, like walk up some steps or something, and I, I'm writing myself, oh, yeah, I got it. I, I mean, it's like the slightest <laughs> thing. It, That's it, what I mean. This test is important. This is a yeah. big one. Like it, being it, it able is. to distinguish this as we head into the season is, is pretty important. I was very relieved to hear that yesterday. I mean, I've taken my temperature a hundred times. Have you guys in the, in the yeah. last month? I can't break yeah, 98. The, oh, we, I can't we have break the, 98. They, you you got to take the kids' temperature every day before you can send them to school. Yeah. So we're taking temperatures multiple times a day. Have you broken 98, yeah. Sorkin? It must be cold-blooded. 99. You have? 97, a lot. Yeah. I'm 97. Went, uh, I can't break 98. Constantly. I run hot. I actually, I actually went to a, 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 doc, just a doctor yesterday, not because I, I was ill at all, just, or, and they take your temperature to go in. And I yeah. jogged there thinking, oh, this is going to be a problem because I was jogging. But I was still 97, so yeah. who knows? By the way, guys, the average temperature has dropped since the mid-19th uh, century. I saw from that. 98.6. Yeah, did I you know. read the whole thing? It's really interesting why. I read it a, about a month ago. Yeah. yeah. It's really interesting it why. Because we're, 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 we're just better off. I mean, we... First thing it says is better hygiene. Yeah. So if you're filthy, you have a higher temperature. <laughs> like your body's trying to deal with the <laughs> Wait B.O. A and, yeah, it says that. But also, the, we, I the am I told you that. Oh, yeah, that, you did say that. Uh, we know that. I'm not no, dirty. We, we did. No, I shower but, um, every day. But if it's, you're in constant temperature all day long, it's different than when, uh, you know, back in like the 19th century, it'd be really cold in your house. You'd like put the fire right. on and, you know, warm up. And I, I mean, it, now we're just so, you know, we take so many things for granted. Food's Pampered. better, standard of living is better, and we're cleaner, some of us. And that's Squawk Pod. Thanks for listening today, this week, and every week. We've been doing this podcast from a few closets and dining tables for nearly seven months now. And we couldn't do it without our growing group of listeners and subscribers. Please be a regular part of that. Subscribe to and share Squawk Pod. On TV, Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. They'll all be back at 6 a.m. Monday morning, and so will we. Have a good weekend. We'll meet you back here next week.
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.